Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Thursday, February 15. I'm your reader, Kathleen. The headline for today's paper, Neighbors Oppose P&G Expansion at Iowa City Site. This story is by Aaron Jordan. If Anne Marie Krauss moved from the house where she's lived for 40 years on Iowa City's southeast side, she would miss her raised garden beds apple trees and neighbors who help each other shovel their sidewalks in the winter. But she wouldn't miss the smells drifting from Procter & Gamble, which has two manufacturing plants nearby. You can always smell whatever it is they're making, said the 71-year-old retired school librarian. Krauss said she has experienced headaches and nausea she attributes to the fumes around the plant that manufactures beauty and grooming products. She's now thinking of moving because of P&G's proposed expansion onto the former Kirkwood Community College branch campus on Lower Muscatine Road. The Iowa City Council next month will consider rezoning 6.8 acres from neighborhood public to general industrial so P&G, a Cincinnati-based multinational company, can complete its planned $6.4 million purchase of the property from Kirkwood, which announced in January 2023 it would close the Iowa City Branch campus. Planning and Zoning Commission unanimously had agreed to the rezoning January 17, sending it to the Council for final approval. Neighbors opposed to the expansion say it doesn't fit with principles of environmental justice which holds that poor or marginalized communities shouldn't be harmed by development from which they do not benefit. The area around the P&G plant at 1832 Lower Muscatine Road, which is adjacent to the Kirkwood site, has a higher percentage of low-income residents and black and Hispanic residents than Iowa City overall. Fine particulate matter in the air, lead paint, traffic and hazardous materials storage All are above the 80th percentile in the one-mile radius of the plant. That, to me, screams this is definitely an environmental justice issue, said Tracy Davey, who lives on H Street, two blocks north of the site. I would hope that it means something to City Council. One of the main questions from neighbors is what P&G plans to do with the former Kirkwood site, which has several buildings previously used to house classes and other educational programming. The narrow lot is between the existing P&G and a Mid-American Energy office. We don't currently have existing plans on what we'd like to do with that property, but we'd like to have the opportunity to potentially expand, Joe Townsend, site engineer leader, said at the January 17 Zoning Commission meeting. P&G operates three plants in Iowa City, The one adjacent to the Kirkwood site is the former Oral-B plant, where workers make manual and electric toothbrushes, Townsend said. P&G also makes oral care products at the former Menards site on Highway 1 and beauty products at 2200 Lower Muscatine Road. We've received multiple correspondence. Some people have gotten the idea there's chemicals going to be produced there. Planning and Zoning Commission Chief or Chair Michael Hench said to Townsend about the site adjacent to Kirkwood's former campus. Is there any basis for that? No chemicals would be produced there, Townsend said. If we were to expand oral care operations, 
it would be primarily within making oral care toothbrushes or power toothbrushes, which is not a chemical manufacturing process. It's an injection molding process. As an industrial site, owners could use it for warehousing, freight movement, recycling, or heavy manufacturing, among other uses. The reality is that with that new zoning designation, with them or anyone down the road, anything can happen, Speaker Mary Helen Kennerly said at the meeting. You just have to trust in our regulatory agencies and their decreasing strength in our state that nothing bad will happen to this community. I just want to convey how cautious I think we should be going forward and considering a change like this. P&G has had a plant in Iowa City since 1956, Townsend said. We continue to try to be a good steward of the environment and the community, he said. The company sends no manufacturing waste to the local landfill and is working towards zero greenhouse gas emissions, Townsend said. Recent state environmental inspections yielded no violations, he said. While P&G may not produce chemicals, it does store large quantities of them at its Iowa City locations. According to Tier 2 reports, the company is required to file with the federal government and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Chemicals at the former Oral-B site include a cooling liquid that contains phosphoric acid and sulfuric acid, several types of thermoplastic polymer resin, and lead-acid batteries. P&G's beauty care plant down the road at 2200 Lower Muscatine Road has a more extensive list of high-volume chemicals, including benzyl alcohol, citric acid, hydrogen peroxide, liquid argon, perfume, and various surfactants used in shampoos and soaps. Iowa OSHA conducted an unannounced inspection at the beauty plant November 7 after a referral. That visit still is listed as an open case. P&G spokesperson Patrick Blair did not respond to specific questions about the OSHA inspection, whether the company planned to tear down the Kirkwood buildings or whether an expansion would involve a larger workforce. Ann Russett, senior planner for Iowa City, said the rezoning fits with the city's comprehensive plan and it's compatible with the area, which has a mix of industrial and residential properties. When we were looking at the rezoning, there are very few possibilities for that site, she said. We wouldn't want residential in an area that's pancaked between two industrial land uses. As an education institution, Kirkwood wasn't paying property taxes on the site, but P&G will be taxed as an industrial user, with those payments helping support schools, cities, counties, hospitals, and other recipients. Russett said it's a good question whether adding more industry to this area fits with an environmental justice focus. If the neighborhood has concerns about environmental justice, we're going to be working on a comprehensive plan update soon, and that's something we should look at at that comprehensive plan, she said. Also on the front page, this story by Marissa Payne, income-eligible households can apply to buy new homes. Low to moderate income households affected by the 2020 derecho may apply to buy one of 76 soon-to-be-built single-family homes around Cedar Rapids 
through a city program using $15 million in federal disaster recovery funds to expand affordable housing. Starting today, the City of Cedar Rapids will accept applications from the public for its Redeveloping Ownership Opportunities Together, or ROOTS, program. The effort will use Federal Community Block Grant Disaster Recovery Funds from the U.S. Housing and Urban Development Department allocated to the Iowa Economic Development Authority to provide disaster-resilient single-family homes in locations throughout the city. The funds were awarded primarily to Lynn County, which was hardest hit in the hurricane-force winds of the August 2020 derecho. The unprecedented storm damaged most properties within the county, damaging housing stock at a time when Lynn County was grappling with a lack of affordable housing. It's all levels of government working together to support community development and disaster recovery. City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said, All of us come together and work together to create this opportunity for our residents, for our neighborhoods, for our future growth and equity within our community. The city will take applications until there are purchase agreements for every home, which will sell for a maximum price of $175,000. To access the application and more information, visit cityofcr.com forward slash roots. Derecho affected households will receive the first opportunity to buy the homes for the first four months. Construction of most homes is slated to start this spring. The program is the second iteration of a program that used federal funds to build 869 homes after the 2008 flood and sell them to income-qualified households. To participate, buyers must be at or below 80% of the area median income and be able to secure an approved mortgage through a qualified lender. Based on household size, income limits range from $53,000 for a one-person household to $106,000 for a nine-person household. Eligible buyers may qualify for up to $35,000 in down payment and closing cost assistance as a forgivable loan, which is forgiven in monthly installments over 15 years. The 15-year affordability period will be enforced by a forgivable lien on the property. Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said the city requires partnerships to provide affordable housing, a city council priority. Home ownership is a game changer for those who earn that as an asset, O'Donnell said. Providing quality affordable housing has been key to meeting the needs of our current and future residents. To select the locations where homes would be built, housing services manager Sarah Buck said developers went through a competitive process and responded to requests for proposals. Homes will be available throughout the city. A review committee scored applications for affordability, architectural design, green building principles, and developer experience. Those projects then went to the state for final approval. All homes will be built using green practices and disaster-resistant amenities, including bioswales and other stormwater management practices, advanced framing, insulation, and safe rooms to mitigate disaster risk. Hannah Kustis of Abode Construction, which is building 30 of the homes, 
said that amid inflation and construction cost spikes, it's been a challenge to continue to build affordable homes. Costas said people moving out of entry-level workforce housing into these new homes will free up more affordable housing throughout the city. It seems to be one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities if you can take advantage of it, Costas said. Turning now to page two, some Iowa Today stories. First, judge to decide rightful owner of $15,000 cash involved in possible fraud. This story is by Trish Mahaffey. The rightful owner of nearly $15,000 in cash that was deposited into a Bitcoin machine in exchange for the cryptocurrency is in dispute after a Coggin man reported he was a victim of fraud when he, an alleged scammer threatened him and told him to deposit the money in exchange for bitcoins. Shelby Kaysen, age 69, asked the court Wednesday to return his $14,800 found by Lynn County Sheriff's investigators in July after he reported he deposited that amount in the bitcoin machine at Hawk's Smoke Shop, 1396 7th Avenue in Marion. Lawyers for the bitcoin machine Bitcoin Depot Operating LLC, during the hearing, argued once the money was deposited and Kaysen received $14,800 in Bitcoin, the money belongs to the company. According to court documents in July, Kaysen received a pop-up warning on Facebook telling him his computer had been hacked and told him to call a number, which he did. The alleged scammer then told him to withdraw $14,800 from his bank and deposit it in a Bitcoin machine in Marion. The alleged scammer accused Carson of having child pornography on his computer and said if Kaysen didn't deposit the money and turn over the cryptocurrency to him, Kaysen would be turned in to the FBI. Kaysen deposited $14,800, all in $100 bills, into the machine and had a receipt for the transaction, according to the investigator's report. Kaysen then received Bitcoin for that amount and also had a receipt for that transaction. Later, he realized he had been scammed after talking with a neighbor. On July 31st, Lynn County Sheriff's Lieutenant Dave Buter obtained a search warrant for the Bitcoin machine because he believed the machine hadn't been emptied and likely contained Kaysen's money, according to court documents. Rochester Armored Services, who had the account for this Bitcoin machine, opened the machine for law enforcement, and Kaysen's money was found inside. According to the report, the money was hand-counted for accuracy, and a receipt from the machine and from Rochester Armored also were obtained as part of the investigation. A property receipt from the Sheriff's Department was given to Rochester Armored. The Bitcoin machine was secured to the floor, so investigators couldn't seize it, the report stated. Instead, photos were taken of the machine and the money. Kaysen filed a motion to have his seized money returned to him, and Bitcoin Depot also filed a motion to have the court determine who is the rightful owner of the money. During the hearing, Assistant Lynn County Attorney Elena Wolford argued the investigation remains open regarding the fraud case, and if a civil or criminal action was filed, the money would be evidence. Wolford, representing the Sheriff's Office, said, according to the law, the money should go back to Kaysen. 
Kaysen during the hearing told 6th District, excuse me, 6th Judicial District Judge Ian Thornhill that he had a stroke recently before this incident happened and he was on medication at the time. Kaysen said his friend was named his power of attorney since the stroke and attended the hearing. Kevin Collins, lawyer for Bitcoin Depot, argued that cash taken from the machine isn't evidence of a fraudulent scheme. Kaysen deposited money and he received $14,800 in Bitcoin and then Kaysen took the Bitcoin and gave it to another person. That isn't the responsibility of or fraud by Bitcoin Depot. The moment the funds were deposited in the machine, it became property of Bitcoin Depot, Collins said. It's unfortunate crooks have used cryptocurrency in this way, but it's not the Bitcoin company's fault, he added. Collins said Carson gave the money to a person who turned out to be a scammer. Nobody hacked into his Bitcoin account and gave it to the scammers. Thornhill said he would provide a written ruling at a later time. Also on the Iowa Today page, man leads police on chase through multiple cities. This story by Emily Anderson. A man was arrested Tuesday after Cedar Rapids police says he led them on a chase across multiple cities that ended when he lost control of his vehicle and crashed into a ditch off Interstate 80 in Coralville. Dakota Michael Holt, age 19, is charged with two counts of harboring a runaway minor against wishes of parent, assault on persons in certain occupations, interference with official acts, failure to obey a traffic control device, reckless driving, failure to provide security against liability, speeding more than 20 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour or less zone, failure to maintain control, eluding, and a one-way streets violation. The first count of harboring a runaway child was filed last year after a 17-year-old girl whose father had reported her as a runaway in October was found in November in Holt's residence in Cedar Rapids, according to a criminal complaint. Holt was arrested and charged in December and was released on his own recognizance. He submitted a plea of not guilty in February, or excuse me, in January. On February 7, he failed to appear for a case management conference and a warrant was issued for his arrest. On Tuesday, Cedar Rapids police had been informed that the runaway still was with him. Officers spotted him driving a car at 33rd Avenue and Edgewood Road Southwest with a female passenger and attempted to pull him over because of the arrest warrant, according to the criminal complaint. Holt led police on a chase out of Cedar Rapids through North Liberty and into Coralville, where he lost control of his car and crashed into a ditch along I-80. He resisted arrest by headbutting one of the officers twice in the face, but was taken into custody. The passenger in his car turned out to be a different 17-year-old girl, who also had been reported as a runaway by her mother, the complaint states. The complaint for the first harboring a runaway charge listed Holt's address in Cedar Rapids, but the complaint for Tuesday's charges listed an address in Iowa City. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a reprint from Wednesday's Los Angeles Times, and the title Trump's NATO bombast invites aggression. 
Given Donald Trump's penchant for trash talk, it's tempting to discount the rant in which he suggested that as president he would encourage Russia, Russia to attack NATO allies who are delinquent in their financial obligations. Trump's remarks are alarming, even if he isn't seriously urging an act of war against a U.S. ally or suggesting he would pull the United States out of NATO. In remarks in South Carolina over the weekend, Trump claimed the president of a, quote, big country, end quote, presumably a NATO member state, once asked him, quote, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us, end quote. Trump said he replied, quote, no, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they wanted, end quote. Trump isn't the only president to call on NATO member states to spend more on defense. Such jawboning seems to have had a positive effect. Some NATO states are now satisfying the benchmark that they spend at least 2% of their gross domestic product on defense. NATO member states also have joined the U.S. in assisting Ukraine. But that 2% shouldn't be a condition for benefiting from the alliance's commitment to mutual defense. That principle is reflected in Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which says, quote, an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all, end quote. The U.S. benefited from Article 5 after the September 11 terrorist attacks when NATO invoked it to support the military mission in Afghanistan. It may be unlikely that Trump would try to take the U.S. out of NATO. For one thing, Congress last year approved legislation that would require an act of Congress or approval of two-thirds of the Senate before the president could withdraw the U.S. from the alliance. But if Russia believes Trump wasn't committed to NATO and the principle of collective defense, it might be emboldened to move against neighboring NATO countries. It's not surprising Trump's latest comments would create concern about his support for the alliance, which he once called obsolete. On Sunday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned, quote, Any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. Clearly, Trump is unfit to return to the White House after his attempts to overturn the 2020 election but voters also should reject him because of his, his hostility to NATO and the international order of alliance has helped create. Moving on to 24-hour doorman, this article is titled, Florida Think Tank Shines on Our Super State. So the Opportunity Solutions Project's name sounds great. It's got opportunity and solutions. Also, Americans love a good project. But the benign-sounding group is the Florida-based lobbying arm of the Foundation for Government Accountability, or FGA, a large conservative think tank. Last year, the Opportunity Solutions Project lobbied hard in Iowa to ease restrictions on child labor. They've also worked to pass legislation, making it tougher to get unemployment benefits and food assistance. The project and FGA have crisscrossed the nation, fighting Medicaid health care coverage, expansion, 
and shredding safety net programs. FGA designated Iowa as a super state where its conservative policy objectives can get approved. So we're a super state with the freedom to flourish. Heady stuff. Opportunity Solutions now has two lobbyists under the Golden Dome of Wisdom, and they've got plenty of work to do pushing the organization's agenda. Among Iowa bills the project is supporting is ending the gender balance requirement for state boards and commissions, adding two Republican politicians as non-voting members of the Board of Regents, while altering the university's presidential hiring procedures and other, excuse me, and another, placing strict limits on university equity and inclusion programs, while emphasizing intellectual and philosophical diversity over racial, gender, and LBGT diversity. The real discrimination on campus is against conservatives. Other bills supported by Opportunity Solutions Project include a bill to make nonpartisan local elections partisan, another bill that would bar undocumented immigrants from receiving in-state tuition at state universities, and legislation that would allow businesses to ask for relief from state regulations from a 13-member panel with four non-voting lawmakers and nine slots filled by the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Opportunity Solutions also backs Governor Kim Reynolds' plan for dismantling area education agency services. How many of these bills will live through this week's funnel deadline? We'll soon find out. The FGA, which raised $10.6 million in 2020, is mostly bankrolled by a list of conservative groups and a couple rich guys. The Uline Family Foundation, headed by Elizabeth and Richard Uline, donated $3 million to FGA in 2020. That's a lot of packing tape and bubble wrap sold by the family business Uline. Leonard Leo, which leads the 85 Fund, donated $2 million. Uline is an election denier who funded efforts across the country to improve election integrity. Leo drew up the list of judges Trump picked from to fill Supreme Court seats and other positions on the federal bench. FGA touts what's called IKEA advocacy. FGA and Opportunity Solutions will draw up policy proposals for state lawmakers and governors while also providing research and lobbyists to help get its policies passed. Then the groups lend a hand during the administrative rules process. Everything you need comes in a single box, a big U-line box. What do Iowans want? Who cares? They don't have the money, connections, or clout to make it happen. We have the opportunity to take their solutions or shut up. And that's 24-Hour Dorman. One community letter today is titled, Ask Legislators to Support Aid to UN for Gaza. Many Gazette readers were no doubt shocked, as we were, to learn 12 employees of the UN Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, are suspected of participating in the terrorist attacks by Hamas against Israel on October 7. In response, the 12 employees were fired. The UN Secretary General, Antonia Guterres, promised a thorough and swift investigation. 
Several nations, including the United States, suspended temporarily their funding of UNRWA. UNRWA's 13,000 employees across the Middle East provide vital humanitarian assistance to 6 million Palestinians, including 2 million in Gaza. As of January 29, 152 UNRWA staff members in Gaza have been killed and 146 UNRWA schools and other facilities have been damaged. Call upon our elected officials to support a resolution of the conflict that ensures that life-saving aid continues to flow to the people of Gaza. The United Nations has been helping countries help each other for over 75 years by working to maintain international peace, giving humanitarian assistance, protecting human rights, and upholding international law. The UN depends on full funding to do its work. Please ask your senators and representatives to support full funding of the UN. And that is signed today by John Fuller and Mercedes Byrne Klug, United Nations Association of Johnson County. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 15th on IRIS. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices. In Kyoto, Charles, known as Rex Horning, age 62, died Tuesday, February 13, Powell Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And also in Kyoto, Lorraine J. Miller, age 90, died Tuesday, February 13, again Powell Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Ryan, Marilyn Rose Zeiser, age 73, died Tuesday, February 13. Bonin Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Manchester. And from West Liberty, Michael Allen Ridnauer, 83, died Tuesday, February 11. Henderson Barker Funeral Home. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Iowa City, Eugene, known as Jean Harley Schuchert, Age 83, passed away February 11 at Briarwood Healthcare Center. A celebration of life service will be held at 2 p.m. Sunday, February 18th at St. Andrew Presbyterian Church in Iowa City. Memorials are suggested to the University of Iowa Center for Advancement, P.O. Box 4550 in Iowa City, 52244 or to the Antique Car Museum of Iowa. Checks for the Antique Car Museum can be sent to St. Andrew's Presbyterian at 140 Gathering Place Lane, Iowa City, by placing Car Museum in the memo line. For a complete obituary, or to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit gayanchia.com. In Iowa City, Gregory, known as Greg G. Piper, age 61, died suddenly at his home on Monday, February 12. A time of visitation for family and friends will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, February 17th at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service. Private family graveside services will take place at Oak Hill Cemetery in Coralville. A memorial fund has been established in Greg's memory and for a complete obituary or to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit gayandchia.com. From Ashen, Jane Schmitz, age 87, 
of Arkadelphia, Arkansas, formerly of Ashen, died Monday, February 12, at her home. Mass of Christian burial will be at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 20, at St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church in Ashen, the Reverend Henry Huber officiating. Visitation is from 3 to 7 p.m. Monday and from 9.30 to 10.30 on Tuesday at the church. The rosary will be recited at 3 p.m. Monday at the church. Parish scripture service is at 6.30 p.m. Monday also at the church. Interment will be at St. Francis de Sales Catholic Cemetery in Ashen. A memorial fund has been established and an online obituary is available at jamesonschmitzfuneralhome.com. Helen Jane Donlan was born on Saturday, March 28, 1936 in Elkader, Iowa, the daughter of Arthur Thomas and Florence C. Bauer Donlan. Jane was preceded in death by her parents and her husband. From Wyoming, Jeffrey F. Taylor, age 60, of Waterloo, passed away February 10 after a sudden cardiac arrest. Jeff was born in Monticello on September 30, 1963, the son of Jack and Wilma Trelaw Taylor. He grew up in Wyoming and was a 1982 graduate of Midland High School and a 1986 graduate of the University of Iowa School of Music. A gathering of family and friends celebrating his life will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. on Monday, February 19th at Calkins Square in Wyoming. A private family burial will be at the Buckhorn Cemetery in rural Maquoketa. Carson's Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa is caring for the family. The family has requested memorial contributions be made to the Fine Arts Program in your local school the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Community Theater, or Cedar Falls Municipal Band, or to a pet shelter. Online condolences can be left at carsonandson.com. Springville, Lois J. Stivers, age 83, died Monday, February 12, at her home with her family by her side. A celebration of life is being planned for a later date. Please visit GetOnline.com to share your thoughts, memories, and condolences. Lois Jean Sherbaum was born October 16, 1940, on a farm near Garrison, Iowa, the daughter of Harold and Alice Meeks Sherbaum. She attended school in Garrison, and when the family moved to Cedar Rapids in 1950, she attended Cleveland Elementary, Roosevelt Middle, and Jefferson High School. She graduated from Jefferson High in 1959. From Tiffin, Terrence, known as Terry J. Disterhoft, age 65, died Sunday, February 11. A memorial mass will be held on Monday, February 26th at 10 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Oxford, where there will be a time of visitation Sunday, February 25th at the church from 2 to 5 p.m. For a complete obituary, or to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website. From West Liberty, Tim Timon Wesley Davison, known as Tim, of Irwin, North Carolina, formerly of West Liberty, passed away suddenly on December 8 in Lillington, North Carolina. A memorial service will be held at the Downey Baptist Church, 2290 Baker Avenue in West Branch, 
February 17th at 1 p.m. Memorials are suggested to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital Headquarters, 262 Danny Thomas Place in Memphis, Tennessee, 38105. For a complete obituary or to share a thought or condolence, please visit gayandchia.com. And lastly, from Iowa City, Ann Alton, age 92, died Monday, February 12. Visitation will take place on Monday, February 19th at 9.30 a.m. at the Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Iowa City with a funeral service following at 10 a.m. Interment will be at Ottumwa Cemetery in Ottumwa, Iowa. For a complete obituary or to leave a condolence or memory, visit lensingfuneral.com. And this story of interest on the obituary page, Bill Post, the Pop-Tart inventor, dies at age 96. Bill Post, who helped invent Pop-Tarts, leading the baking company team that developed the toaster-friendly breakfast food with the fruity filling and an ineffable space-age sweetness, died February 10 at age 96. His family announced the death in an obituary through MKD Funeral Home in Grand Rapids, where Post lived for most of his life. They declined to share additional details. The sugary pastry brought in about $978 million in sales in 2022, according to CNBC, and became a goofy emblem of college football last season when the Pop-Tarts Bowl culminated with the death of its mascot. The pastry's popularity went beyond any expectations we had, Post told CNBC in December. Post is one of seven children of Dutch immigrant parents, was quietly modest about his role in developing the Pop-Tarts, which began with a 1963 call from the giant cereal, or excuse me, cereal giant Kellogg's, seeking help with a breakfast pastry it wanted to market but didn't know how to make. I was just the guy who said we'd do it, he told the New York Times. Turning now to the sports page, Boys State Wrestling is the headline, Munson Bounces Back in Time for State. This story by Rob Gray, a correspondent. As Dylan Munson's temperature went up, he found it hard to keep food down. The number one seated 106-pounder from Cedar Rapids Prairie battled a mysterious illness late this season, which made his primary concern maintaining his weight rather than cutting it. I was unable to eat, said Munson, who is healthy now and headed to the Class 3A quarterfinals of the Iowa High School Athletic Association State Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena. I'd throw up every time I ate. I got down to 104, and I finally bounced back from it. I just practiced harder, and it helped, I guess. It just went away after a while, but honestly, it just depended on how hard you work. Munson... 38-3, and won his only match on Wednesday by injury default and aims to improve on last season's seventh-place finish at state. And the junior standouts adopted a methodical approach to ensuring he climbs the medal stand this time around. Just win every period and break the guy if you can, Munson said. If you can break him early on, break him. If you can settle a match in the first period, settle it. Don't wait till the third. Linmar's top-seeded 157-pounder, Grant Kress, 
settled his first match with a pin in the second period. The senior remained unbeaten this season against competitors from the state of Iowa and seeks to improve on last season's runner-up finish at 152. I've always believed in myself, Crest said, every single year since freshman year. I'm the best in the state. I don't really care what other people think, but yeah, just coming out and dominating, doing what I do best, it's always been my goal. Cress saw three Lions teammates also pin their way to the quarterfinals. Sixth-seeded 126-pounder Nate Fish won his second-round match by fall, as did top-seeded 144-pounder Kane Nacht-Gaboran and fifth-seeded 215-pound Grant Schultz. Man, it's just fun being on this team, Cress said. Everyone has the same energy. We just keep the ball rolling, getting better and better as we go. That's what top-seeded 113-pounder Alexander Pierce of Iowa City West did Wednesday, notching a win by fall in 41 seconds. Teammate Justin Avia, a third-seeded 150-pounder, also pinned his opponent. Number two-seeded 132-pounder Cale Seaton of Iowa City High won by technical fall to advance to the quarterfinals, and the Little Hawks' number three seed at 138, Cale Kurtz, won by decision 5-2. Kurtz seeks to become a four-time medalist, and he'll need to notch a repeat win over a recent foe in the quarterfinals to cement that achievement. Kurtz will face Will Oberbrockling of Southeast Polk, whom he beat 5-2 to two, two weeks ago in the regional duels. So I'm using that match and building off of it and just focusing one match at a time, said Kurtz, who placed fourth at 132 at state last season. If you keep winning, it's only going to be one a day. So day one, or excuse me, so one day, wake up, wrestle a match, and then I'll get ready for the next day. Southeast Polk led the 3A team race after day one with 58 points. Linmar was eighth with 32. The Boys State Wrestling Tournament continues today through Saturday at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. The schedule for today, 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. is Class 2A, second round consolations, quarterfinals, and third round consolations. From 1.30 to 5, Class 3A, second round consolations, quarterfinals, and third round consolations. And then from 6 to 9.30 p.m., Class 1A, second round consolations, quarterfinals, and third round consolations. You can see it on TV or online. Video streaming for the semifinals and finals is available at IHSSN.com. And also, all matches are available at www.flowwrestling.com. That is with subscription. This story by K.J. Pilcher is titled, Wood, Thankful He Kept Wrestling. This for Class 2A. Mount Vernon's Ethan Wood laughed and shook his head slightly. Even for him, it was hard to fathom. He told coaches he wanted to play winter baseball over wrestling as a freshman and then considered skipping last season as well. Now, thinking about that, I just can't believe I even said it, said Wood, who played varsity baseball as a freshman and has gained interest from NCAA Division I FCS schools for football. Wrestling is so fun, he said. Good decision. 
Imagine what he would have missed. Wood made his second appearance in advance to the 285-pound quarterfinals for the first time at the Class 2A Boys State Wrestling Tournament Wednesday. The Mustangs finished day one in second place with 33 points, trailing Burlington Notre Dame by three and a half. Wood, with a record of 40 and 3, defeated Webster City's Landon Griffin, 5 and 1, and was one of five Mount Vernon quarterfinalists. The Mustangs combined for a 7 and 3 record during the first session. We wrestled really well, Mount Vernon coach Vance Light said. The five guys that were seated wrestled well. A few had close matches, but if it were easy to get down here, there would be a lot more people here. Wood said he's glad he returned to the team last season, which ended with 41 wins and an earlier exit than hoped. He has been motivated to improve that 2-2 and state showing a year ago. Last year, I got a bitter taste in my mouth coming down here and not finishing exactly how I wanted to, Wood said. I wanted to come out this year strong. I had to start with that first victory. I want to be a state champ. I've put in the work. Now I just have to execute here. Wood was a 195-pounder as a sophomore and has bumped to heavyweight for this season. And this story by Rob Gray, Big Gains for the Saints' Nagoma. On paper, Cedar Rapids' Xavier's Jean Nagoma has added roughly 35 pounds of muscle to his body. In practice, the junior 215-pounder's 12-month transformation so far is remarkable. I grew a lot mentally and physically, said Nagoma, who wrestled junior varsity at 170 pounds last season, but is now a state quarter finalist. Nagoma, the number nine seed in the Iowa High School Athletic Association Class 3A state tournament, pinned his first round foe on Wednesday and scored a takedown in sudden victory to win his second round 3-1. to one. And no matter how the rest of the state turns out, or state meet turns out for Nagoma, he set himself up for even bigger gains heading into next season. His transformation is second to none, head coach Ryan Chambers said. He's now probably close to 7% body fat and does more pulls than anybody in the room, so it's really good weight he put on. His transformation is great. Turning now to the things to do column in the education category, caring for new and young trees. Join local expert Rachel Truitt and learn how to take care of new and young trees. This is presented by Green Iowa, AmeriCorps, and Trees Forever. It takes place at the Cedar Rapids Public Library from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., and that is free. Also today, Overcoming Poverty in Our Community, From Hardship to Hope. The panel will feature representatives from the Cedar Rapids City Council, Matthew 25, St. Vincent de Paul, Metro High School, and Willis-Dady Homeless Services. All are invited to join us for this important discussion. That takes place at St. Ludmilla's Catholic Church, 211 21st Avenue Southwest in Cedar Rapids. That's also from 6.30 to 8 p.m., and it is free. And in the literature category, Rich Benjamin keenly and deftly observes modern society, culture, and politics. 
His cultural and political analysis appears regularly in public debate. Benjamin is the author of Searching for Whitopia, An Improbable Journey to the Heart of White America, which was selected as an editor's choice by both Booklist and the American Library Association. That's online with the Iowa Public Library from 7 to 8.30 p.m., and that is free. You can research that event at icpl.org slash events. And the Moors, set in vast English Moors in the Victorian era, two sisters and a dog, live out their days dreaming of independence and love until one day a governess disrupts that world, which sends them down a dangerous path. That's put on at Coe College today at 7.30 p.m. Turning now to the hoopla section, the cover is Big Moves, Hancher Ties in Hairspray Tour Coming to Iowa City. Hairspray's national tour will appear February 23rd to 25th at various times. UI alum Amy Rodriguez plays as Tracy Turnblad on Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. Various ticket prices are available. You can call the box office at 319-335-1160. In the food category, Cedar Rapids and Iowa City Restaurant Week releases their menu specials. The Iowa Brewfest returns in June with Corridor Breweries. Restaurant Week for Iowa City and Cedar Rapids kicks off soon, but you don't have to wait until it starts to tease your appetite. Menus for both ends of the corridor, each lasting 10 days, are now available. Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week, organized by the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance, will kick off this year with the Fork and Knife Feast, which returns for the first time since 2020. The event scheduled for today will run from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at Epic Event Center, 2987 Epic Drive in Marion. Tickets are available at cedarapids.org and it includes unlimited food and drink samples. From February 16th to the 25th, foodies can order full-size plates of their favorite samples at participating locations throughout Cedar Rapids and Marion. Also in the food category, Ramen Challenge, this by Elijah Decius. A quickly growing chain of ramen houses is testing the waters of eastern Iowa ahead of plans for other locations around the state. Hokkaido Ramen House, the first Iowa franchise of the chain that came to Coralville in December, is working in tandem with another recently opened location in Ankeny to see how receptive the Hawkeye State is to more ramen restaurants. The restaurant, located in the space formerly home to Fuzzy's Taco Shop, has more than 30 franchise locations across the country. Its entrance to Iowa follows 10 openings across Montana and Idaho in 2021. In brief, if you go, it's called Hokkaido Ramen House, 201 East 9th Street in Coralville. Their hours are 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. It's authentic Japanese specialty ramen soups, served alongside Asian fusion appetizers and sushi with a selection of baba tea, sake, wine, and beer. Entrees range from $12 to $22 for dine-in 
or carry out. Finishing up with a brief look at the weather. Slight chance of rain or snow today with a high in Cedar Rapids of 41 and a low of 24. The normal high for today is 32 degrees. The normal low is 15. A record high of 73 was set on this date in 1921 and a record low of 19 degrees below zero was set in 1905. A chance of snow appears tomorrow and then mostly sunny through the rest of the weekend. Sunset tonight is at 5.40 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.01 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 37 minutes of daylight. And we're in the waxing crescent moon phase with moonrise at 10.02 a.m. and set at 1.04 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, February 15. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.